As the shock of last November is now supplanted by new crises and indignities on a weekly basis, our narcissist-in-chief sucks up all the attention, and it becomes all too easy to forget the larger significance and broader sweep of the election that brought him to power. Namely, that the center could not hold. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show is Populism Against the Center. We're listening to Fela Kuti's Coffin for Head of State. Today, our guest, Theorio Francos, suggests populism is not the problem, as so many in the center, left and right, fear, but rather the answer to the decades-long program of neoliberal policies that have created a politically disengaged citizenry, along with historic levels of economic inequality. But if populism is the answer, what flavor? On the left, populism lays bare the class antagonisms that already structure social, economic, and political life. On the right, populism obscures them, replacing them with cultural chauvinism, xenophobia, and racism, reproducing rather than contesting inequality. We'll discuss democracy and populism in the United States, the hollowed-out center that contends all populisms are a problem, and the populist lessons to be learned from pink-tie governments in Latin America. And now, Populism Against the Center on Interchange. Uh, you've got an essay in the journal N Plus One titled Democracy Without the People. What if populism is not the problem, but the solution? And I think that we need to spend a little time with the title itself uh, and maybe try to go a little bit slow if we can. So what is democracy without the people? Well, democracy without the people seems to be um, what's being advocated for in some of the mainstream analyses of why Trump won, but also the, the threat that he poses. And if it sounds paradoxical, I think that that's good. It should sound a little contradictory and paradoxical. Um, and I think that some of the analysis of the threat he poses is off. And some of the implications drawn from that about um, how we should respond to Trump are also off for that reason. Mm. I guess the question, uh, first and foremost, is there democracy without the people? And then what is the people? I think that that democracy without the people is kind of an elite fantasy. <laughs> okay. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that it's the desire to have something called democracy, because democracy has a legitimate, um, nice sound to it. We want our political system to be democratic. Um, but to have democracy without having real popular, what I would call democratic control of government. So literally, uh, this is the sense most of us probably have at this point. It's why it seems like we're at a, um, some sort of tipping point or explosion uh, point, maybe the idea that there's, there is very little democracy. Uh, the people have little voice. We see over and over again um, polling that shows us the people that get polled want certain things uh, from their politicians and from government, and government and politicians do the exact opposite of what the people seem to be saying. So I think that's part of the question here. Part of the point of the essay is to try to track back some of that 
I don't know if it's just rhetoric uh, about what democracy is and what the people are and what the founders said and, and how we should stabilize these things. And I know I'm way ahead of myself here, but but I, I guess that's where where I've been kind of tossed into this place, too, is try to understand, well, what does it mean if I go to the polling place and I vote for someone that, and that doesn't matter because I'm gerrymandered and I want to vote Democratic or Republican or Green and that has absolutely no effect because my district itself will always be Republican or always be Democrat. Never green, of course. Sorry. Um, right. But right. So, so that you know, well, that's I, where that's what we're focusing on. What is what is yeah. democracy in that kind of world? I think that the feeling that that we don't really have a democratic system is one to hold on to. Um, I think part of the problem with some of the mainstream liberal, however you want to refer to them, responses to to Trump and and the way they characterize his threat, which of course is very real. Um, is as a threat to a democracy I don't think we've really had. Hmm. Um, or sometimes it goes so far, and this is kind of what I talk about in my piece, as as a redefinition of democracy as something else. Um, and I think it's important to hold on to what you're saying, which is that it's the experience of being in the citi- uh, citizen in the U.S. and feeling disempowered, feeling like what goes for public policy doesn't reflect what you really want and what many citizens really want. Um, and so I think in that context, it's important to to understand that context, first of all, to understand what kind of threat Trump poses, because the threat is not a downfall from a perfect democracy. The threat is is actually an exacerbation of some of the worst tendencies of our political economic system, which are already present, unfortunately. Mm, that's a key point that you make throughout is that Trump himself is sort of uh, just doubling down on what's available to do right now. Yeah. And I think some of the the reasons that Trump is so scary um, is because he has so many tools at his disposal um, to do some pretty dangerous things to democracy, to to human rights. Um, so I think he does pose that threat. But the question is, why does he pose it? It's not because he's coming in and able to do whatever he wants for any reason. It's because those tools already exist. And that's part of what I try to get at in the piece. Um, so the fact that he can do what he's doing with executive authority right now are part and parcel of a transformation that's that um, under the past three presidencies have vastly expanded executive power um, and the centralization of power in the executive in the U.S. Um, in order to go to war, in order to surveil the population, um, in order to control immigration um, for any number of things. And so we see Trump using tools that his predecessors designed. Um, And we have to be clear about that because it's not just opposing Trump because his personality, because he's outlandish, because he's brazen even, um, but because he is using tools already in place to very dangerous ends. Yeah, it's a, it's an important point, as you say, uh, to try to hold on to this perspective is that, uh, not, not to normalize it, but to say that this is SOP in some sense, or this capacity has, as mm-hmm. you say, been built in already. You talk about um, uh, inheriting a branch of government already well-equipped uh, to undermine democracy, uh, even though, as we've already said, we're not quite sure what democracy is at this yes. point, but to undermine even even what we think, what we thought we had as a democracy. So it's it's it maybe is a good a good time. It's a strange thing to say, but maybe a good time for something to awaken the populace to the idea that we're not being governed in from within the mythos that we've constructed. Right. So is that where populism has opportunity? Yeah, I think that you know it's useful to contrast what the sort of mainstream um, uh, 
response to Trump is, and especially in terms of some of the political strategies that the Democratic establishment, for example, um, is contemplating, um, versus what maybe a more left populist response to mm. Trump might look like. Mm -hmm. um, uh, part of the problem with painting Trump as, as an extreme aberration and using this very limited notion of democracy um, as just checks and balances and bipartisan restraint and not real popular control of government, one of the implications of that is that these authors tend to dismiss Trump as a right populist, as someone that's going to upend our whole political system um, and invoke this sort of demonic version of the people. But they also tend to dismiss left populism um, and sometimes do so on similar grounds. And I think that's one of the places they go wrong, because I think partly the Bernie Sanders campaign, also developments in, in Europe and in Latin America, show that a left populism can confront a right populism and is not the same thing as it, mm -hmm. but confront it actually more effectively on a sort of political strategic level, but also actually lead to real substantive policy change in a way that sort of bipartisan centrism, which is our ideological fixation in this country, really can't do, really, mm -hmm. cannot confront Trump, doesn't have the means to do it. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Thea Rio Francos, author of the recent N Plus One essay, Democracy Without the People, which asserts that the resurgence of populism isn't a problem, but may in fact be the answer. Hmm. Well, let's back up a little bit and define populism so we all understand what that means. It's, one of the, again, one of those many words that we toss around here uh, in uh, America, in the United States of America, that don't, uh, don't seem to ever get defined very well. Even our yeah. primary terms aren't and often defined. So if you, would, if you wouldn't mind, go sure. ahead. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame, I think, in the American context because we have such an interesting history of populism. Mm -hmm. And it's a history of populism that – you know, I think even parts of the mainstream of the Democratic Party owe their their history to um, and sort of the um, progressive movement as well. So that history is important to understand to not just dismiss populism as something that's always right wing or that's something new. Um, so the, in the U.S., the populist movement in the late 19th century was a coalition uh, between farmers, down and out farmers, and uh, urban laborers. And it was an uneasy coalition, and there were certainly racial exclusion, gender exclusion, and we could sort of get into the complexity of it. But it was a poor people's movement. And it was a poor people's movement across rural and urban lines that really sought to challenge monopoly capitalism, you know, so they were in the first Gilded Age, and now we're in the second Gilded Age. So it's not shocking that populism has kind of come back under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But populism really is a type of political movement, um, or sometimes a political party that seeks to restore some idea or, or, or achieve kind of popular control over government. And in the process, they tend to construct a shared identity of the people. Hmm. And that's a hallmark of populism, this idea of this collective subject that we, however we is defined, are all a part of and that deserve and should have control over our collective life, our social life, our economic life, our political life. So that's kind of the, the generic thrust of populism, but also a little bit of its roots in, in American history and the sort of farm worker, uh, urban worker alliance. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you can see various waves of populism um, in the U.S., so in the past few decades, we kind of have a resurgence of right-wing populism in the U.S., um, starting 
uh, in certain ways with, with Nixon and Reagan and sort of a right-wing populist backlash against the civil rights movement. Um, and then more recently, we have some left versions of populism. I would put Occupy in that category. I would put the Sanders campaign in that category. Mm-hmm. So I think populism is ideologically diverse, but what it has in common is this shared articulation of the people and how they ought to exercise their power in a democracy. But mm. that can be defined in ways that are completely opposed ideologically opposed in terms of who their bases are, what types of policies they advocate. Um, So there's a lot of diversity under the tent of populism. Right. So I have, um, I guess, uh, generally with populism, I'd always uh, associate it with uh, Eugene V. Debs, who is the socialist, Mm -hmm. um, but also uh, made an alliance with the populist movement at the time. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And I think that um, socialism and thinking about populism from a socialist perspective has a lot to offer. Um, And so kind of bringing it more recently, as I was saying, with Occupy and Sanders, what I think a more socialist or left radical version of populism does is illuminate the already existing inequalities in society Mm. and say, you know, we, the people are actually excluded in many ways from controlling politics, from controlling our economic lives, Mm -hmm. right? We're disempowered and excluded. And those that have power are a minority of the, you know, the wealthy, the oligarchs, you know, at different points in history, they've been called different names, Mm -hmm. um, capitalists, um, whoever they are, um, um, or however they're referred to, those people are a minority, and they control so much of our lives. And we, the people, which is a necessarily because there are different forms of oppression and exclusion is necessarily a diverse group kind of need to get together and unify and sort of take democratic control. So that's a left version of populism. Um, and, and the right version is quite different. It is often nostalgic, revanchist, kind of looks to excluding people among sort of racially or ethnically or gender wise, excluding people and saying who the real people are versus the, the not real people or the outsiders or the others. So there's a lot of racial and ethnic divisiveness that usually comes with right wing populism, because again, it's not defining in the right wing version, it's not defining against an elite, it's defining against often racially or ethnically or nationally defined other. Hmm. You do have, uh, I suppose, two kinds of scapegoats, I suppose. One, it seems real, yeah. <laughs> the, the, mm-hmm. uh, the people who are in charge of everything, uh, the elite, uh, wealthy, uh, powerful, etc., uh, become the object of your ire and that your populist uh, uh, movement moves against. And then on the other side, you've got a scapegoat that has no actual um, power to affect your life so much, but it becomes the thing that you get pushed on to, that uh, immigration, yeah. for example, things of that nature. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. And I don't want to sort of rehash old Marxist debates about politics, <laughs> but there is a way in which there's, with right-wing populism, often a re-channeling, a redirection of sometimes legitimate forms of anger, sometimes not legitimate forms of anger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to put people's kind of class anger on the same plane as as anger that has really racist roots to it. But, you know, I think there there's sometimes even legitimate forms of anger that certainly get redirected as um, anger against immigrants um, or, or fears about immigrants taking our jobs. You know, well, the real culprit is not immigrants uh, <laughs> right. in any empirical sense of the term. So I think, I think there is a difference between left and right populism 
not always in their in their rhetoric. I think sometimes there's superficial similarities in their rhetoric, and this is where political scientists sometimes trip up and put them all in the same category, just because there's a formal similarity. Like they both talk about the people, mm-hmm. they both talk about grievances, sometimes even injustice. You know, um, um, so I think on that very superficial level, they're they're, they're similar, but. The question is the the substantive content. Who do they designate as the enemy? Who do they classify as the people? How are the people united? All of those things are very different in right and left populism. Mm-hmm. So your title also, um, I guess, uh, makes the point or insinuates that that uh, there are people that do feel populism generally is a problem, is the problem, um, yes. which is interesting, right? You know, yes, and, and, and it's almost, in almost all of these articles I read, and I began to obsessively read them, so I've read many more than I even cite in the, um, in the N plus one essay, um, all of these articles, when they talk about Trump as a more general phenomenon, which they often do, um, as part of a more general um, phenomenon, he, he's always cast as a populist, and he's cast as a populist of a sort that is happening in Europe and in the U.S. and in Latin America. Um, and in doing so, they really paper over the differences between different types of populism, the substantive difference between right and left populism. Um, and they also kind of reanimate this fear of popular rule that I think elites have, have always had. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in any unequal society, uh, those that are the minority at the top are worried about losing their power. They're worried about the the strength that if they were united, most excluded or oppressed people would have. So um, so they're worried about that kind of specter of, of popular revolt. And they're worried about it, whether it's from the left or the right, though, for different reasons. And the right wing version is actually much less threatening to their interests, which is almost the kind of ironic part. I would say the the left wing version is more threatening to the elite than the right wing version is, though the right wing can involve instability, which might be bad for investments. But it, it doesn't fundamentally usually kind of threaten their property rights as a left wing populism might. Yeah, you get the sense that the right-wing populism is about just getting your own property rights, right? Right, right. And also, I mean, as as this one of the books that, that kind of inspired my analysis um, called Populism's Power, which I, I very much recommend, um, point kind of drove this home for me that actually um, um, sort of what we might call neoliberal neoliberal politics um, almost requires or seems to produce right-wing populism. Like there's a, there's actually a, a um, symbiotic relationship between like the Tea Party, for example, which I would call a form of right-wing populism and the type of neoliberal policies that reproduce inequality. They kind of go hand in hand. Mm. Um, Whereas left-wing populism can potentially under certain circumstances pose more of a challenge um, to neoliberalism. An actual threat to how we organize it an actual threat to how we organize political and economic Mm -hmm. power. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Thea Rio-Francos, author of the recent N Plus One essay, Democracy Without the People, which asserts that the resurgence of populism isn't a problem, but may in fact be the answer. Yeah, so this is this is a I think for me again a key point that that is that is important here, and I think you make throughout, uh, and I think you make, uh, and we'll talk about this a little later too in the essay on the Latin American populism as well. The idea that the center or this liberal democracy that might be the center, the the Michael Walzerian center, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. 
center. Where where we are um, standing, both feet and the one foot in the center and one foot in the left, or something of that, of that nature. But that this is the neoliberal center in many ways. This is the um, the fear of losing power, as you say, and the centrist seems to always want to uh, find our way back to that um, mythical yeah. government that we're we're supposed to have been taught about and, and toe the line for, but it turns out to just be the elite power structure generally. Right. And I think that, you know, there was a time period um, from the, the 90s um, through Obama that something like the center could hold very tenuously and sort of covering up a lot of the deep problems in the U.S. Um, um, but for a variety of reasons, the center can't hold anymore. And you see this, you know, kind of extreme response by a self-identified centrist that that their world is kind of collapsing and disappearing. And it's it's really not new. It's just that they were not aware of it. But and it was kind of happening behind the scenes and in all sorts of places in ways that they ignored. But mm-hmm. but the the Clinton campaign's failure um, uh, to win against Donald Trump, I think, was sort of the last gasp of of this. But you still see, no matter what, I mean, even though it's so clear that that type of politics can't respond to Trumpism, um, you see people sort of grasping at it because they don't really know how else um, to analyze or what else to look for or what other types of political alternatives are possible. Right. I think that's part of the issue for most of us. There there doesn't seem to be any – well, we've not trained anyone in how to actually be a Democrat. Or, and we, we don't do democracy training generally. We don't no. understand how it actually might work. Um, it's one of those things that when we have these kinds of situations, we're actually looking around at each other and saying, what in the heck are we supposed to do? Because we don't have any models for it, at least right. in this country. Right, right. And I think that um, the democratic establishment, um, which we could get into at great length <laughs> if we want, um, really has increasingly divorced itself, both ideologically and at an organizational level. Um, in terms of its bases, has really divorced itself from anything like a grassroots um, political orientation. Um, it, there may have been historical moments where it had something closer to that, um, but we're certainly not in one for the past few decades now. Right. Um, right. Well, um, the I guess part of this gets hard because uh, you know I know I have friends uh, friends on the left who who will say uh, you shouldn't push against the left too hard, which I don't know what left they're talking about generally, but uh, because because the right's so strong or because the you know the populist anger is in, in the right uh, camp right now, and and we need to uh, I guess with Michael Walzer stand closer to the center if we can and try to pull everybody back into that middle space, uh, but right. but I think that. That's problematic because the left, as we know it, and I guess this isn't even a left, the liberal or the center, as we know it, has no plan for the bulk of our citizenry. So it's hard to hold on to anything. It's hard to be for anything in particular. It's one of those things where, um, you know, again, in your essay, you point out these differences between left and right populism. Uh, You say on the left, populism lays bare class antagonisms that already structure social, economic, and political life, while on the right, populism obscures them, replacing them with cultural chauvinism, xenophobia, racism, uh, reproducing rather than contesting inequality. So, you know, this is this is what we're sort of running up against is having to look at these two things in the face, right? Staring right at them and say, well, if there is a left 
populism, and we can understand the class antagonisms, and we can see the structural difference,、uh, the structural problems, which I think most of us who have these conversations see.、Uh, but yet we confront the many, many people that we know who don't see them or、uh, or have had them obscured. By the media, by our our Facebook,、uh, you know,、uh, re- responses.、Uh, you know, how do we break through this particular situation to actually declare the the left populism? The Sanders campaign that you mentioned before seemed a powerful force, but it was undermined by the center, right? It was un- undermined、right. by the Democratic Party itself. Right. I mean, ironically, because probably. Um, that I think that type of politics, as I said before, is a better path to victory for a number of reasons, and and it's not just because I think it's ideologically correct, though I I do,、mm-hmm. um, but or that the analysis of power is is correct, but that because it speaks to people's material concerns and to their life experiences and to the exclusion and oppression and indignities that that we're all subjected to、um, in a highly unequal society. So. Um, I think a left populism takes that seriously and doesn't tell people America's already great, but actually says, you know, right, America's not that great for a lot of us.、Right. Um, why is that, and how can we deal with that? And actually has a point by point response to anything that comes at, you know, not anything that comes out of Trump's mouth,、mm-hmm. maybe, but but his, you know, his major sort of policies around jobs and trade and infrastructure, and all of them are from a right populist perspective. All of them. Are either in complete collusion with kind of plutocratic oligarchic forces, or they're um, um, racist and xenophobic. So, but there's a response to the jobs issue. There's a response to the trade issue, or the infrastructure issue, the healthcare issue. That's not a right wing response, but is a left wing response. And that's what the Democratic Party, for various reasons, has avoided really presenting. It's not just a problem with messaging. It is real substantive policies that you can communicate to people because they make They make sense and they address people's concerns. So,、um, I, I do think there is a hopefully a moment or an opening for、um, for the left and including you know the liberal left um, um, to sort of realize that necessity. It's time for a break. Our music is El Pueblo Unido Jamás Será Vencido by Kilapayun, a folk music group from Chile. Formed during the mid-1960s, the group became inseparable with the revolution that occurred in the popular music of the country under the popular unity government of Salvador Allende. More populism against the center with guest Fierio Francos. When interchange returns on WFHB. Con decisión, la patria vence.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our program is Populism Against the Center, and my guest is Thea Rio Francos, author of the recent N Plus One essay, Democracy Without the People, which asserts that the resurgence of populism isn't a problem, and in fact, may be the answer. We begin the second part of our program looking at the ways the neoliberal capture of the center has led to disengagement from politics, especially on the left, and what to do about it. Then we'll turn to the so-called pink tide governments of Latin America. The pink tide refers to social movements which represent a profound shift away from the neoliberal policies that dominated the region in the 1980s and 90s. These movements, based in the popular sectors of labor, peasant, indigenous, and urban neighborhood groups, emerged as forceful collective actors. They resisted the onslaught of privatization, deregulation, and austerity imposed by a coalition of domestic elites, often under pressure from international financial institutions and the United States. But much of their popular success as governments, Rio Francos tells us, was due to a commodity boom, which gave these resource-rich countries like Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador operating budgets flush with cash to spend on social programs. That boom has ended, and the tide seems to once more be turning, and this time to the right. And now, part two of Populism Against the Center on Interchange. Well, I think part of the struggle we're we're having is that you know we have, uh, as opposed to as I said, being trained in democracy, we're trained in disengagement. We're trained yeah. in in all the ways in which we need to be individual, and and the neoliberal project has us um, trying to sell ourselves in all ways as, uh, that we can, and and to not be interested in our workplace as a place to join and be together, to to only be interested in what what it is we do and how we get along and the people we're friends with and our relatives, and and that's as far as we can go if we go that far. Um, you know, we've just worked so hard within the last forty, fifty years to to narrow our experience and to narrow our perspectives on life. And as much as we talk about the ability to see everything through this machine I'm looking at right now, uh, you see very little. It's a mirror for the most part. And so that's the real issue is that you don't quite know what to look for. And it's frightening to think a change in our social organization, our change in our politics that is truly democratic will mean a change in my living. A change in my uh, my housing environment, a change in how I go to the grocery store if I do, a change in if I drive my car, a cha- you know, there just will change things, a change in who I talk to, a change in the fact that there shouldn't be uh, 17,000 square foot houses. You know, these things have to change. And for a lot of people that have these thoughts, if they think, uh, if they're in that leisure space where they can think about how the world is constructed, are afraid of that, Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that something like real democracy would require a tremendous amount of of changes in our in our how our society is organized. Um, but I also think kind of the flip side to that, from kind of an organizer's or educator's perspective, is you know each of those nodes or moments that you pointed to the experience in the supermarket, the experience at work, at home, online, you know, all of those kind of arenas that you pointed out are also kind of places where where people experience um, inequality and and 
and places where you can sort of kind of instruct, well, you know, what is your daily life like and what would a different type of life look like? So it's on the one hand challenging that, you know, neoliberal capitalism feels so total. Um, on the other hand, the fact that it's total means that there's a lot of, of nodes and places and points to to criticize it, to interrupt it, to try to build something different. I mean, every kind of negative point moment of reproduction is also an, uh, an organizing opportunity. But we have to think we, I'm kind of speaking vaguely, we people interested in changing society have to think about those moments of reproduction creatively. With what seems a uh, divided political country, I suppose, even though I don't ever know how to take our elections anymore, what 60 million on one hand and 60 million on the other mean, I never quite understand how is it possible that there's half of each of us in the country, is it really true that there are half of us that believe in one way of life and half of us that believe in another way of life? Or are we thinking the same things just in a different uh, register, perhaps? I'm not sure. Um, but it always has seemed to me that, you know, winners uh, and losers is how we see ourselves generally. And uh, I just don't quite know what to do with, you know, a world that has already sort of created those kinds of people, those kinds of thinkers. So I, I guess I'm just struggling with how we're going to uh, to do these things, you know, without disrupting in ways that really scare people and, and, and scaring people becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think one thing to keep in mind just about the earlier part of your question uh, about if there's two totally different types of people in the U.S., given the Republican and Democratic kind of breakdown, vote breakdown, is how much disengagement there is. Right. I think we kind of think like, oh, half the country is this way, half the country is that way. And in this red state, blue state thing kind of makes it even worse because we think entire States are one way or the other way. Right. Um, just remembering that that so few people vote in the U.S. and that's that's its own question about voting or not voting. And I'm not going to get into that, but I'm just going to note that many people feel that there isn't an attractive option, and many types of people mm -hmm. feel that there isn't an attractive option. And I completely sympathize right. with them. I mean, there there haven't been that many attractive options. Um, so I think that you know, for the first, is important to keep in mind that when we say this fifty fifty thing, it's not. It really isn't the whole country, and there are a lot of people that are disengaged, and they're disengaged for good reasons and can could be reengaged not necessarily just into electoral politics but reengaged politically and reengaged into um, forms of mobilization perhaps that maybe they're new to or haven't experienced and we see a huge uptick right now in people getting politically involved and not um, not just, you know, in the electoral sense that we're used to, but also beyond that in, in all sorts of social movements and protests and and rallies and demonstrations and occupations. And so we see we see a definite interest in politics at the same time as a disengagement and disapproval, really, of our political system. So mm -hmm. that's kind of an interesting conjuncture that I think presents um, a lot of opportunities. Let's say uh, an important point, and I do tend to forget it, that uh, that a lot of people don't vote and and. Uh, a lot of people don't see, as you say, don't see a reason to vote necessarily. There's no one that's going to change the way I have to live. Uh, the question, I suppose, is to shift into a smaller scale, right? So uh, I sometimes think the national you know, circus that we have uh, disabuses us of being engaged politically where it will do the most good, which is on the home front, right, where we live, where we wake up and, and go to work. Right. And I think that, you know, what one of the things that the Republican Party has been able to do is completely 
entrench itself at the subnational level mm -hmm. in states and localities, municipalities. And they've done so in a very systematic, strategic way, um, of course, with some advantage perhaps over the Democratic Party. But still, I mean, when they were losing nationally, they refocused locally and built a party from the ground up. And um, certainly if there's any hope of the Democratic Party not just collapsing on itself since it's losing at all levels and all spheres and branches of government. Um, it needs to think at a subnational level, but I think also for social movements and social mobilization and experiments in, in other ways of organizing society, those um, can sometimes be easier to enact or to pilot or to test out at a smaller scale. Um, so yeah, and the fact that we live in a federal system, so so much is controlled locally and at the state level, um, and the left should take advantage of mm -hmm. that think about that strategically. Right. Well, I saw uh, recently, and maybe you saw it as well, that uh, uh, to your point about how this has happened at the state and municipal level as well, that uh, the Republicans have taken over all these uh, state houses and governorships as well. I think 33, 34 state houses are controlled um, by Republicans and governorships. Um, it's interesting. I think the majority of metropolises that have uh, 200,000 plus uh, people have mayors that are Democratic mayors. Um, but anyway, I just saw this morning a note that uh, some, I think in, I think it's Tennessee, but Indiana has done this as well, where state legislators are introducing bills, making it a requirement of municipal officials to disrupt public gatherings in the streets, even with force, mm -hmm. as well as uh, having immunity from prosecution if someone runs a protester down with a car. Um, yeah. So, okay. you know, you can see this, this, <laughs> this very, very clear drive to make you know, populism on the left, you know, to make protest on the left impossible. Yeah, I think that we're going to see a lot of backlash against protest um, at the state level where it's, you know, quite easy because of these Republican controlled uh, state houses and uh, um, governors um, and also at the national level, as we see with recent executive orders around uh, police departments, and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think we will see a backlash, but it's important to keep in mind that um, you know, the, the state uses its power to repress um, in this kind of reactive way when it is being pushed. I mean, this is in part, this is a response to protest, right? It's not mm -hmm. a preemption protest. There's already protests happening and um, the state is using its repressive capacity to respond to it. But that doesn't work forever. You know, political science teaches us that states um, that rely over and over again on, on repression, um, it's not it's not a stable or sustainable form of power. And I think that that as scary as it is, and we do need to be scared and aware of it um, and take, you know, whatever precautions necessary when we're mobilizing, um, um, especially for folks that are more likely to be targeted by the police. Um, we understand it's scary, but I think we also see it in, in some ways as a weakness um, that, that the state is immediately responding that way to protest. Hmm. More populism against the center with guest Thea Rio Francos. When Interchange returns on WFHB. Well, uh, let's uh, let me ask a quick question too about. Uh, I guess uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier the kind of a demagoguery in this space. We talk about uh, Trump being a kind of demagogue, and and is there a sense that from I, I guess from the right you have a sort of cult of personality? Um, is it's not the is it the same on the left? Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure what a demagogue is on the left yeah. versus right. 
I think it gets tricky, and this is where, um, with populism, we need to distinguish between populist movements, populist parties, and populist leaders. Hmm. It's not that they're opposed to one another, but they're distinct phenomena and sometimes distinct moments in a process of populism. Um, and under the best of circumstances, it's a productive tense but productive dynamic um, where you do have populist movements or the bases sort of pressing against the leader, maybe pressing them to the left, maybe radicalizing them, maybe reining them in if their power is getting too expansive. Um, so, but point being, yes, um, leadership is, is any political party um, needs leaders of some sort um, or even grassroots political movements. Um, even if it's very decentralized and there's rotation, there's, there are people that take responsibility and commitment and risk. And I wouldn't reject the idea of leadership, but I don't think right and left populism leadership is the same. Um, Cause I think the goals are different and the relationship with bases are different, but certainly there's a possibility of a leftist leader exhibiting tendencies towards centralization, co-optation, authoritarianism, and there are certainly many examples of that. Sure, I think that's part of the struggle. What what are the grassroots bases doing in response to that? That's, I think, important to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just, uh, I guess, as you start to think about them, you can think about them ideally. You can say, well, on the left, we're all for brotherhood and love, but then something generally happens where, as you say, if you win power, then then I guess you kind of revert to the fact that there there are structures in play that you that you kind of make use of. You don't necessarily tear down the structures. And I think that's part of the question that we need to be asking ourselves here too, right? Uh, how do we change or, you, you know, or tear down the structures that are, that are sort of continually uh, thrusting us back into these places where we have no engagement? You know, you talk, I think, in the piece um, about institutions as well and how uh, institutions kind of hamstring us in a lot of ways. There's definitely a predicament on the left you know, from a perspective, again, of wanting to transform our society um, to on the one hand, you have a set of existing institutions that there are potentially productive ways to engage with um, as long as there's a clear sort of ideological perspective and, and clear how you're mobilizing. But there's ways to engage with existing institutions, whatever they are, school boards, right, city councils. Um, um, there are certainly ways to engage with those with those institutions. But we also kind of have to think on this dual track which is how do you create institutions that actually allow uh, for self-government and for um, collective power and for um, you kind of talked about how we need to learn to act democratically and collectively and to sort of learn that you need to create new spaces for that. Um, so I think that there's always a dual a dual track to um, social transformation in that sense. You have to work with where you're at, whether that's institutionally um, or in terms of what people's current beliefs and identities are. And you have to simultaneously kind of envision how those might change um, and what structures or institutions or organizational apparatuses need to be in place uh, to continue change, right? So it's always Mm -hmm. about creating new structures as well. Right. So let's go ahead and and walk into Latin America. You uh, we're going to turn pink here, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) So uh, and I guess that's uh, that's that means we're not quite turning red. Uh, in terms of uh, communism, uh, is that generally what that means? I think, you know, it depends who you ask. What's kind of interesting is that sometimes in the U.S. media, as well as in the Latin American media, which is primarily privately owned and has a very, very conservative slant in most countries, um, they kind of paint all of these leftist presidents that have won over the past couple of decades as 
very radical leftists, right, as as kind of like um, implementing socialism and um, immediately and kind of undoing the entire state and, and uh, mobilizing um, poor people to kind of um, against rich people and all of this kind of stuff, which there's a truth to. Certainly there's that that rhetoric exists and, and 21st century socialist is how many of these Latin American leftists have identified. But um, but they they in some ways and for various constraints and reasons haven't per se, you know, certainly have not revolutionized or created uh, a socialist economy or done away with with even liberal democracy. Um, I think that what they've done is sometimes inflated on um, there. There's an important shift to the left that's taken place. Um, and there's obviously some recent electoral losses. Um, but some of the transformations that have happened are, I think, remarkable, just in the sense of basic things like inequality being reduced, right? Like nutritional and health indicators in doing much better, um, people's incomes rising, um, and access to education, healthcare, uh, more political participation. So I think that there have been some successes of political parties that have really primarily focused both in policy and rhetoric on the sort of less well off, so to speak, in, in Latin America. Um, some of that success was due to what's called the commodity boom. So this is where it gets a little complicated, because some of the reasons that they were successful in part due to the, was due to the fact that they had um, really flush state coffers. Mm. Um, because they, all of these countries rely on the export of natural resources. So for about a decade, um, a lot of this was driven by China's incredibly fast-paced growth um, and increasing demand for, for natural resources as a result. Um, and this was between 2000 and 2010. Um, and so that, that exactly coincided with the, with the so-called pink tide or the left turn in Latin America. So at the same time that you have um, uh, leftist governments coming to power out of decades of anti-neoliberal mobilization at the grassroots level, um, they have historically high prices and have a lot, have a kind of better budget to work with and, and actually do implement some of the policies that they promised to and campaigned on. That period is over and that's not unrelated to why there have been electoral losses. There, there are other reasons, but certainly a part of it is the economic downturn in large part because of the drop in prices. Hmm. This is one of those things that, that, as you say, I think complicates understanding those those issues, I suppose. Um, trying to imagine cultures that that realize some greater sense of equality, as you say, in economic terms, in health terms as well, uh, but also understanding that that came um, due to the fact that the governments in power could spend money on those things, and they did spend money on those things, right? So we, we often talk about that here as if we don't have money to spend on things, but we have a, a political party that chooses not to spend money on people, generally likes to spend money on war for the most part. I don't know how else to say it, right? Surveillance, war. I mean, it's it's generally war that we spend money on, I think. So I, I think it's a continually a, a struggle for me to try to understand what it is people, and I mean people generally, like every one of us, thinks that we're supposed to be getting in our lives from our governments, right? So it's right. it's uh, so when I try to say, well, let's look to governments, let's look to places where there are left governments. What is it that they're doing? Are they are they basically New Deal governments in Latin America? Is there is well, that? Well, so what they what they've done 
first and foremost, increase social spending a lot. And these are um, the, the countries you're talking in particular about. Yeah, let universe. me I yeah. Can be more specific. Yeah. So I'm talking about Ecuador, Bolivia, Venezuela, Brazil, Uruguay. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving someone out, but for... There was a point in like 2010 or 11, and I forget when the statistic is from, but somewhere around there, where about two-thirds of the region's population lived under left-of-center governments. Oh, also Argentina. Mm. So th- those were those are sort of the countries, and there are plenty of overlap between them, but there is also differences. The differences, though, in my view, don't necessarily only come from like the style of leadership. And this is kind of something I get at in the in the essay, in the N plus one essay, and just in, in general when thinking about populism, there's always an over focus on the leader. Mm. And so yes, like um Chavez might sound more and maybe be more radical in some way than Dilma Rousseff, you know, or 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 Lula in, in Brazil. Um but What's key is to understand the relationship between, again, where did that populist leader come from? They didn't emerge from there. Um, and what kind of relationship do they have with their bases? And are those, is the base of their party or movement pushing them in a radical direction? What kind of reaction are they getting from elites? Like th- there's a whole dynamic that, that helps one understand a trajectory that a given country takes. Um, so that, that's kind of the way that I would analyze the left. But to answer your your prior question uh, about what policies they've put into place, first mm-hmm. and foremost, across the board, the moderate and the radicals included, um, have increased social spending a lot. And this is very important to understand um, in a historical context, because for a couple of decades, from the mid-80s um, through the early 2000s, the prevailing policy orientation in Latin America was neoliberalism, and often of a pretty orthodox and extreme variety that involved austerity, cutting, not just cutting the state budgets, but actually eliminating whole aspects of the state, um, um, decimating labor unions as a very clear political project um, to, to undermine the power of, of working class movements, um, deregulating massive areas of the economy, allowing for financialization, um, all of these trends that we associate with neoliberalism. And and the result was, of course, increasing inequality, um, economic precarity, really a a human development disaster in many ways. That is really the history um, that these leftist movements come out of. And so social spending is not just like we're going to spend money because we like spending money, but because there's what's called a, a social debt accumulated, just decades of austerity have um, really had disastrous consequences. I think more uneven has been actually changing economic power relations and class relations. I think that's more difficult, certainly, than than social spending. Um, And I think the degree to which different states um, ruled by leftist administrations have achieved that is is um, varies. So, you know, that I would say would be the next step. In terms of transforming Latin America, there needs to be something more than just increased social spending. Um, the power relations between a very oligarchic elite and the mass, the mass of society, are just have been historically unequal since conquest. Mm-hmm. Uh, one yeah. of the one of the questions that I'd I'd, I'd end on, I suppose, um, is uh, you know what is the alternative to that standing in the center and the left at the same time. Um, if that's, as Walzer says, a complicated but historical task, can you organize from within s- these structural inequalities so that you can restructure? Uh, as you say, we're losing ground. I said we. I said we. Uh, <laughs> I think I put myself in that camp. We're losing ground in these places. Uh, uh, again, I do feel that Trump might 
offer us an opportunity because he's definitely not making people happy that he was supposed to make happy. Uh, but as you pointed out, the, the pink tide, I, I noted in a, a Google search today that the economist said populism is rising in Latin America in 2006. And then the very next item was also from the economist. It said populism is, is on the outs in Latin America. So there's 10 years. Good. Overdone. Finally. Whew, we are done with that. What's right. next? What do we What do we do? You know, what other than as you say, there are, there are points in which we can sort of press back. But what is it that we can do to to maybe push this even further? Right? Maybe push yeah, it even I, harder. I think that you know, I, I certainly was not in of the opinion that Trump would be good for social mobilization and protest. You know. Prior to his to his election, I, I didn't think that I wasn't you know, a leftist that secretly wanted to vote for Trump in order to accelerate the process of revolution. But what's interesting is that now he's in power. Um, he's certainly acting quickly. His cabinet is acting quickly. Uh, the social response has been very quick and very creative. Um, and um, I think certainly will hopefully over time kind of uh, solidify, consolidate, think more strategically, think more long term. And, and, and that's a whole other conversation, probably. But I think, you know, the first thing to recognize is that Americans have not sort of just taken this sitting down, right? They're they're despite all these calls to centrism and bipartisanship and a peaceful transition to power that we got um, um, from Obama and, and Hillary Clinton kind of in that transition phase um, between the inaugurate between the election and the inauguration, um, people have not just let power transition peacefully. Um, there's been a tremendous upswell in protest um, of, of many sorts, you know, from, from again, going out into the streets uh, to constantly harassing um, elected officials um, to showing up at town hall, flooding town halls and demanding the protection of, of our health care, um, all sorts of, of, of interesting forms of social resistance. So I think that there's, there's a very multifaceted and multifaceted by nature because we face a multifaceted threat um, social resistance movement growing. And then the question is, you know, how does that consolidate a bit? How does that movement learn to think strategically and use all its collective intelligence to actually figure out um, not just how to defeat Trump, right? That's just approximate goal, um, Trump and Trumpism, but also um, to think about a different type of society um, and what the steps and it's a long haul, you know, it's not it's not in the next year, it's not in the next five years, it, you know, who knows how long um, a, a process like that would take. But I think at least having that be our horizon, I think is very important to orient action in the present. That's our show. We'll close with Where There's a Will, There's a Way by the Crusaders. Thanks to Thea Riofrancos of Providence College for pointing out the way the center demonizes populisms on both the left and right in order to repress participatory democracy. Next time on Interchange, the People's Party and Black Populism in the United States with author Omar H. Ali. Following the collapse of Reconstruction in 1877, African Americans organized a movement in the South for economic and political reform, black populism. Between 1886 and 1900, 
tens of thousands of black farmers, sharecroppers, and agrarian workers created their own organizations and tactics, primarily under black leadership. By the turn of the century, black populism was crushed by relentless attack, hostile propaganda, and targeted assassinations of leaders and foot soldiers of the movement. The movement's legacy remains, though, as the largest independent black political movement until the rise of the modern civil rights movement. The People's Party and Black Populism, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. You can find podcasts of Interchange at our website, wfhb.org, slash news, slash interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and editor. Our board engineer is Jennifer Brooks, and Joe Crawford is executive producer. Next up is Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie on your community radio station, WFHB. Now more necessary than ever.